Welcome to the Giant Step Podcast with your host, Maurice Bernstein, as we take you on a journey into music and culture from the world of Giant Step. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Giant Step Podcast, where we take you on a journey into music and culture. I'm your host, Morris Bernstein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Giant Step. And this week's podcast is with Lisa Cortez, the Academy Award-nominated and Emmy-winning producer and director. Um, Lisa started in the music business and then branched out into producing and directing movies and documentaries. But she's always had the thread of telling stories. Um, the, the interview was originally done on March the 11th, um, 2021, on our Instagram live platform. So please excuse any noise glitches or, or, or sound issues because the content is well worth listening to. And if you want to find out more about Giant Step, visit us at our website at giantstep.net or follow us on Instagram at Giant Step. And please send us a message and tell us what you think of our podcast. Uh, So now, please enjoy my conversation with the great Lisa Cortez. There we go. Hi, Lisa. Morris, hello. I had a freak out. What happened? Tell me. I'm good, but my my internet went out. <laughs> like five minutes before we were about to start, right? Uh, literally, I was like, ah! <laughs> Well, I, I I can. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can. Perfect, perfect. Well, we've got people joining. I'm really happy that you uh, you're joining me today on this. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Lisa Cortez is an Academy Award nominated, Emmy winning producer and director and the founder of Cortez Films. Uh, but you're that and so much more, Lisa. So, uh, today I, I want to get into it and, um, you know, really talk to you about sort of what you've done in your career, uh, and all the amazing uh, contributions you've really made to to I'd say culture and art, you know, uh, whether it's uh, musical films. So um, I think we should get right in it. And um, I'd like to start at the beginning. So um, tell us, Lisa, about sort of your your growing up and and how you got into music and and then eventually into film. Um, so wh- where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up between Harlem and Connecticut, um, and uh, I grew up between. Why well, is like keep going out? Okay, okay. Just this a, a really rich cultural uh, stew that my parents gave me. My dad is from Colombia, uh, you know, Afro-Colombian, rich musical tradition of, of cumbias and and. Latin culture and African culture. Um, my mom is African American from here, but music, I think at times my parents didn't always speak the same language, but music was the language that we all spoke and connected. So whether it was, you know, 
my mom always used to say she would put on um, uh, Ray Charles ingredients and a recipe for soul. And she paid it two times. She, she could get the house clean by then. And, wow. you know, whereas my father was rocking, you know, day and say, yeah, and, and Latin all stars and, and funk gospel and poetry. Um, What's, which, know, which, which, which were some of the poets, ever, which were some of the poets that he was playing? Well, it was more my mom. She had come from that tradition of reciting, um, you know, poems in cons at her church. Um, so could it be anyone from Langston Hughes to Conti Cullen to Gwendolyn Brooks? And later on, you have, you know, the last poets entering in. Um, and so I think what I got from them is that this whole idea of that, you know, black folks are not a monolith. And we are communicating, telling our stories and furthering our narrative in so many ways internationally. I saw that big connection, you know, um, from a very early age. Uh, I was very much into musical theater, a very young girl. And then when I went off to college, um, I uh, at a certain point I always was singing with a band. I had little jazz trios. Where did you go um, to school? Where did you go to school? Uh, I went to to Yale University. And what did you um, study there? But I also I also went to you know two eighty eight St Nicholas, one hundred twenty University. Right. Know, that that's I, the I that was the jazz the jazz jam place. Right. That was the the jazz club. Right. No, that's where my dad lived. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got it. Cause on, but on St. Nicholas, there was also a jazz club, I seem to remember. Oh, yeah. There, well, yeah. well, there was St. Nick's Club, which is no longer mm-hmm. there in the 150s. Yeah. And, of course, uh, across on 125th Street, you know, there were places like the, the Baby Grand, Excel, where there was musicians coming and playing and, and people hanging. But, you know, I, I, I was a singer. You know, when I was 15, I sang with Count Basie. And wow. in college, I was in groups. And so. So you, you were you doing know, jazz. Like, so you were jazz. You were a jazz singer, would you say? Or was it a mixture of different styles? Um, it was really jazz. Uh, I spent one summer, one rebellious teenage summer. I think I was 14 listening to all of Ella Fitzgerald's. Uh, songbook albums, the the Cole Porter songbook, mm-hmm. the Gershwin one. I yep. loved Ella's voice. I loved her her style. I loved Amazing. how she could swing. You know, because Ella could swing hard, Ooh, and Ella yeah. could swing soft. Yeah, yeah. She she had those different elements and and, and nuances that were were basically effortless for her, which was one of the most incredible things about her. So yeah, I was a jazz singer. And, and you were, did you, did you do gospel or did you sing in church? You know, I, I had uh, this background growing up between the Catholic and the Baptist church. Uh, and definitely the Baptist church had better music. Um, but, um, I, you know, I didn't sing, uh, there. I did actually sing in an acapella group. So, you know, I've always been interested in all the different ways, uh, of, vocal interpretation of of uh material and then uh, what did you study at college by the way i studied uh i well i studied a lot of different things before i 
ended with a major. Um, there was that period when I was Near Eastern languages and literature, uh, mm. but ultimately, um, I, I I can read hieroglyphics like nobody's business. But that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast. Oh, I never um, knew you. I never knew you were a Near Easterner because I I was at. Um um, we we called it Orientalism in England, you know, a very colonial name for it. But I was at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London, so I never knew that about you. Wow. <laughs> wait, 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 what was your language, Morris? Was it Greek, Latin, or uh, what? The, at, at school, um, well, it was. I, I did Islamic law, so it was more Arabic. But I don't speak any Arabic. I just had to learn certain words to. Um, just understand sort of legal terms. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I can't say, yeah. I that about you. Wow. Okay. We have a, we have that in common thing. But the ultimate, so what I, but my final, what I, so in Niven, I took a year off after my uh, sophomore year. I went, I lived in England. I actually oh. had an internship at Parliament um and saw a, a lot of great music and, and at, at, you know became my second home so you had you had you had an internship at the house of the parliament yes N- not 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 with parliament funkadelic who might have been in england i kind of feel like uh, I, I had both yeah. <laughs> but but I literally at the Houses of Parliament right. was wow. this crazy time. And just, you know, I just took that year off to reset. And when I came back, my ultimately, my major was in American studies with a concentration in African-American literature. Oh, and and then you, you went back, you went back to school. And then when you left school, how did you I mean, obviously, you. You went into you. You went into music, right? Straight from school, or there was a, a another twist in the tale. Uh, well, I was in a band. Well, okay, I went to law school for a day, and then I was in a band. Uh, and a dear friend, Lisa Jones Brown, she um, was putting together a magazine and she said, Hey, do you want to write for the magazine? And I was like, sure. Ideas. And she's like, well, you know, like you're into hip hop. Cause I just was like a hip hop head from day one. Like no one was writing in the eight, you know, the late eighties about women in hip hop, but there was, we have always been there uh, from the beginning when the first party happened, you know, uh, cool her sister through the party yeah. that yeah. DJ at. And yeah. so, um, uh, I wrote this article, and through writing the article, I ended up meeting um, Bill Adler, the publicist at yep. Def Jam. Yeah. Uh, and I just kept going back there and talking myself into a job. Uh, after my stint in, in the band, the band was called City of Gold. Um, and uh, then I ended up uh, in the you know working for both the management company, and also for the label. The management company was Rush Rush Management. Rush Artist Management. Yeah. Yeah. On Elizabeth Street. Was that in the offices on Elizabeth Street? 298 Elizabeth. I remember it, yes. I remember it well. Um, and Bill used to, he, he didn't call himself a publicist. He was the minister of, what did he used to call himself? The, the minister of, 
information or like the he had a, a title he used to give himself i think it was that like to the outside but he you know i mean right we always called him the. I mean, you know, what's yeah. amazing about Bill Adler is that, um, you know, he had been with the company many years and knew the artists so well, but he also had the mainstream press relationships and was such a, 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 a careful translator to making, making certain that always the authenticity of the artists and the music and the culture was, was being shared by these Journalists who, for the most part, had nothing in contact in, in common you know, with the the artists, um, you know, on the label and on and at the management company. And as you know, it spanned from Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, Houdini, LL Cool J, uh, De La Soul, um, Tribe. Uh, uh, no, Tribe was not there. Um, to, um, you know, Stetsasonic. Uh, you know, um, for a moment, you know, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, like it was the central hub. And of course, Public Enemy yeah. um, for all of these artists. And so you so you were working within the you were working between Def Jam and Rush Artist Management. What was your role? Um, what, what were you what were you doing? Because that's actually how we we met when you were. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, you know, I met you when you were at, at Rush. You know, it, it was interesting. We didn't have titles. It was like whatever we wanted to be. Um, and so the funny thing that I started doing come in early in the morning, and I would call all of the international companies that we worked with. For example, London Records put out Run DMC's records there at that time. Um, at, um, Paul Oakenfeld, Pete Tong, mm -hmm. yep. they were really into hip hop and yep. we were coming to New York and buying records and they were working at London Records at that time. Yep. So I kind of made myself an international liaison. Um, so that then turned into when we went, uh, Later on, to the artists were touring in Europe. That was how I would then go on. I would go with these tours uh, to, you know, the UK. And then later, I remember we had this great fun tour with all of the R&B artists like Orange and Allison William. It was called the Soul Songs Tour. And so I was the, the, the tour manager on that. So that's kind of like when I started um, really listening uh, again because I lived in the UK I was read the face magazine right I knew a lot about like the music that was happening at one time and but then I had this reintroduction um to the a, a new scene that was happening at the end of the 80s that was about dance music and hip-hop and this kind of love affair with incorporating and as music yeah um and i think it's very interesting that you you had the vision of um when you were at um at rush and def jam of understanding the importance of uh, a global uh you know creating global artists um whereas you know i don't think that that was really top of mind for a lot of people back then uh, in the united states because 
you know, hip hop was just kind of a, a, a New York thing or an American thing, but whether that was something that was going to be able to translate itself globally was, I don't think, always top of mind. But you having the vision to know that it not only had the potential, but it, it should go go like that, I think is very interesting. You know, it, what was cool is, you know, I saw that we had some artists who didn't happen in the States. There was a wonderful R&B artist called Tayshawn. Mm-hmm. I love Tayshawn. Awesome. Yeah. It tastes in a dream. He, yeah. he could live and perform and have his music valued. No, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, no, and, I, absolutely. And so yeah. I think, you know, for artists, it's always important what you can do to to cultivate an international audience it's so much easier now than it was then um because you you know just because one market doesn't is ready to embrace what you're doing doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong yeah i think that that's very true and it was around that time that that's when you and i met um and this this was pre giant step um i i was a i was a busboy uh at a restaurant called trixie's and you used to come in there and just enjoy the uh, the madness that used to entail there and um i remember meeting you there i you know i was trying to get into the music business um and um you uh, invited the whole team to uh hold Trixie staff to go to a television airing um at a studio nearby that Public Enemy were performing at and it was that was that was like my first real sort of memory of you um well you know Trixie's was such a, a crazy place i mean first of all the owner Trixie was like a character and um, it it was one of these kind of first places that gave uh, the menu was a lot of comfort food. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see everybody there from Divine to I don't know um, Spike Gilbert. Lee. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and they also had music, and there was a mm-hmm. piano, and I and I actually went there. And, you know, was saying a couple of times when I very quickly quickly discovered, I was like, "Mm, you know what, I I think I need to stick with my day job. And and that's when you sort of gave up music uh, as a career and and focused on really um, working within music. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I came in very naive um, and to have a career as a, a as an artist um, means that so many stars need to be in alignment. And what I enjoyed in the environment that I was in, because I was there when it was it was very small at the company, um, and there was this freedom and fluidity, and like let's there were rules, you right. know. And if anything. What we were all about was respecting the integrity of the music and of the experience of the culture. And, um, you know, I was always that I, I remember writing a story to a letter to Fila. And I was like, you know, Houdini has a song called Do the Fila. And, um, you know, we should do you, you guys should give an endorsement. And I, I wrote it a little bit more eloquently than that. And they were like, well, 
you know, we've tried to do things with Sheena. It hasn't worked out. I wrote back to them like, Houdini is not Gina Easton. You could do things like that. I, I mean, it was really wonderful to then work on the endorsement deal that, that Adidas did with Run DMC. Which was and, huge. I mean, that saved, that literally saved Adidas. You know, they were, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And and so that's kind of when the American studies, looking at culture and, and the impact of youth culture, all of that kind of informed you know, conversations and letters written um, to convince them because they it wasn't an automatic yes. There was, was a great guy, Angelo Anastasio, who really believed in it. He saw it, you know, the the impact of the artists and what they were wearing and the, that brand endorsement. But it took a minute to convince the folks in Germany to, to buy in. Um, but what I loved at this time, when you at going back to your question, like, what was your title? Get in where you fit in and create things. And I'm going to be the international person for a moment and connect here and, and, you know, go visit Columbia in the afternoon. And then ultimately creating it. I created a company there called Rush Producers Management, where I represented all of the incredible producers affiliated with our artists from Larry Smith, who had produced Run DMC and Houdini. Of course, the Bomb Squad, who worked mm-hmm. with Public Enemy, daddy Prince Paul, Mark the 45 King. Oh, wow. Um, you know, these were all the producers that I started representing and introducing them to other companies and getting them, you know, a variety of gigs from publishing deals to remixes and all of that, you know, you know, an expansion of their voice and, you know, imprint on things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because back then it really did feel like the Wild West in many ways. And it, it, the, the script was being written as it went along, you know, the, 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 the birth and the evolution of hip hop culture, because again, it was really a, a local phenomena in many ways that then spread out. So, you know, these people were the pioneers. They, they, there was, there was no blueprint back then. Yeah. And, and I think that was, um, you know, there was always that shock when you were dealing with the corporate structures um, and, um, you know, uh, you had to kind of reset and reorient your approach at times, Um, as you certainly know, when you then went, you know, having the label that you guys had, it was very different than when you were able to, you know, align with acid jazz records or, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Definitely. When you, you, you know, and as you, you needed the corporate partner because of all the things that you couldn't distribution, manufacturing, you know, marketing, or you know, these things were important back then. Things have changed a lot now, which is, which is good. But yeah, you, you had to work with that beast. It was, yeah. And so from Def Jam, um, uh, what was your next move after, after Def Jam and Rush? Um, so, I was working with all of the label producers um, who were the hottest producers at that time. And um, wonderful guy, Gary Harris, introduced me. Gary, rest in peace. Yes. Um, 
he introduced me to Ed Eckstein mm-hmm. uh, at that point had a label called Wing Records. Yeah. Tony, Tony, Tony and Vanessa Williams, and, which was at Mercury Records. Uh, then, uh, so I was offered this incredible opportunity to uh, become an A&R person at, um, at Mercury. And, and Mercury, Ed's, um, um, you know, a music legend. He, he worked with Quincy Jones, uh, before that, right? At, at Quest, I think. Um, he'd, he'd done some work yeah. with Quincy and also obviously his father, <laughs> you know, was an absolute legend. Great Billy Eckstein. Yes. Um, uh, and, and it, it was interesting because I don't think, was there another, um, African, uh, label head back then of a label that was because Mercury had Bon Jovi on the label. It had it, it had a lot of different. I think Rush were on the label. A lot of different artists were there. Um, so was he the first, or am I? Well, uh, as a, for as a label president um, of, at Mercury, you know it's interesting, Quincy Jones. Had been a VP of A and R at Mercury back in way back when, in the, yeah, in the day. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed was Ed, Ed ultimately became the president mm-hmm. um, at Mercury, then followed by um, Andre Harrell, uh, who of course had his own label initially, Uptown, uh, and then Motown, yeah. um, and uh, of course there's Sylvia Roan. Um, I don't think she was labeled president then. So, right. but certainly within the Mercury system, Ed was the first. And Mercury, you're right, was very much a, you know, the Scorpions, Bon Jovi, Mellencamp, um, you know, a lot of artists like that. And then, but they also had like Angela Winbush. Um, you know, there, there was a strong, and of course there was a back catalog that was really strong. Incredible, yeah. Incredible R&B artists. Um, but I think Ed brought like new uh, wind to the sails. Obviously, with Vanessa Williams, uh, we were we had Alita Adams um, and Tony Tony Tony. You know, which of course Dwayne Wiggins and and Raphael. Yeah, Raphael, yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just like right there, it, you're seeing such such great innovation in um, in the music. I remember you guys put out this amazing sampler. Um, like I think in about 90 or 90, Tony, Tony, Tony were on there and a bunch of just a great CD sampler, which was awesome of the music on Mercury. Some old stuff on there as well. It's you're talking about the one that was, it was like a a daisy and then the sampler was in the middle. Yes, exactly. And, And it had, um, it also had, because, you know, Ed had signed, um, the comedian uh, Robin, what's his name? I've forgotten. Oh gosh, Robin Williams. Put it in the chat. Uh, Robin no. Williams. Yeah. Um, Base Kids. Oh right, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And and so it also had interstitial. I put that CD together, um, and it had interstitial comedy bits from yes. from Robin Robin Harris. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that was uh, on there. I understand it's become a collector's item. And yeah, it was awesome that CD. They paid a lot of money for it. 
I wish I still could find it. It was just, it was such a great selection of music on that. It was amazing. So um, as, you know, Mercury, you were doing A&R there. Um, who, who were some of the artists that you were working with? Uh, Ultramagnetic MCs, I resigned. Um, of, of course, Black Sheep, Dresden Long, um, uh, Bujibantan, uh, the cast recording of Jelly's Last Jam, I, uh, Reggie Gaines, uh, Gaines spoke, wow. spoken word record. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, those, like a very interesting selection of, of artists and projects that uh as an A&R person I was a part of and then also um you know because Mercury was a part of Polygram back then in the UK there was uh a, a, a sub label that was part of Mercury UK called Talking Loud so mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that because you were one of the very early supporters of that label uh, and again sort of you had that international eye which because I, you know, I remember when talking loud, they they couldn't get arrested um, in New York. Um, but you were you were probably that big supporter back then. Yeah. Um, I for, I feel like I was in the UK for a conference, and I met the folks at Talking Loud. Giles uh, Peterson, Car- my dear friend Carolyn Pete, who was a promotion there. Um, Oh, you just posted something. Norman Jay. Norman Jay. Norman Jay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Small and mighty team. And I probably heard um, Young Disciples first. um, And uh, then, of course, followed by Omar. And then um, Galliano. Incognito. Galliano. It, it kind of spoke to those kind of two sides of me, like the rhythm, the hip hop, and then the, um, with this serious jazz music. It was this perfect blending and, and with like, uh, of, you know, deep soul. When you think of the musicianship in Young Disciples and, and Carterson's voice and her lineage and what she brought to that, that trio, um, I just thought it was really incredible. And I guess I'm, I was always kind of a backpack, you know, backpack rap and, you know, tribe and, and um, you know, what Primo and, and Guru did together. Like that I saw that there was this parody. There was this beautiful way that that hip hop and jazz be in conversation with one another because in many ways they were exploring the same terrain. And I just felt like the talking loud label, um, the artists who did that. Um, and, uh, it was great to work with you and your team. Um, you know, bringing the artists over here to perform and, and really evangelizing for that music to, um, have a place because, you know, it's still great comfort music for me to, you know, Kick yeah, back that stuff still sounds, still sounds. But the, the the real challenge which we were facing was that when it when you know with a major record label, when you had the Young Disciples or uh, a Galliano, they were so used to on the sort of marketing the promotion side 
going through the channels, the usual channels. And this, again, this, this didn't go. Now you're able to uh, be a multi-channel, multi-genre artist and everybody gets it and they know what to do with it. Back then, if it didn't fit into that little pigeonhole, they just did not know what to do and they'd be scratching their heads and it was easier for them not to do anything. And I felt it was a constant battle of just trying to, you know, take a chance, you know, <laughs> like tr- take it to urban radio, see what happens. I mean, you know, like the, 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 I think a lot of a resistance um, back then I used to find. You know, I mean, that's the plus and the minus it, it it's, you know, it's, it's so performance based um, in terms of, you know, how many ads did we get? Are we, you know, how many spins did we get? And um, there's, there in those type of settings, there's not a lot of space for development. Um, I'd love to say that where we are now is because uh, in terms of acceptance and, you know, these artists who are mixing so many things, different genres together is a result of the seeds, though, that were planted then. Uh, you know, those artists actually now, in many cases, have greater followings and rediscovery than when they were uh, released. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it definitely, you know, you've got to have sort of like the, the people who, who laid the groundwork for the ability to, but it, but it was very tough. Um, and because, it, again, you, there was no other network. And I think one of the things that we, we managed to do is we had to create our own network on a global level because it, it just, we were never going to get onto mainstream urban radio. We, we were always going to have a problem, um, you know, trying to get mainstream uh, retail to accept us because, you know, they're all about shifting units at the end of the day and the same with the sales team. And so it, it you know, it, I think a lot of people, people's careers suffered, you know, to make, you know, make the ability for this, this shift to happen. So I, I think that's absolutely correct. But you know, the cool thing that came out of it was, I think two things that really hit me talking to you. One is community. Like we developed community. We figured out if I'm going to Oakland, if I'm going to Birmingham, if I'm going to Tokyo, who are the people who are supporting, who might not be on the radio. They might have the cool clothing store that, you know, can, can do cocktail hours and pop-ups. And I think cool how that then has turned into this kind of, you know, marketing approach where you yep. look at a culture and figure out what are the different touch points and entryways that we can build a brand from, which I think is one of the genius things that you've done at Giant Step. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we, we had to because you, you're absolutely right. It was about going into a market and what's the coolest clothing store that is selling you know, the, uh, the, the cool streetwear. What's that little independent record store that might be no bigger than a, than a closet, but the people who go there are the people you want to get to. What is that little club? What is, you know, what is the radio state, that college radio station? And from there, you build that network, you join the dots. And then all of a sudden you have this real 
connection and community and that grows um and yeah again this is all before internet and social media where it's it's a lot easier to join adults now but yeah i i totally agree with you um so you know from you, you then set up your own independent you set up your own imprint label um loose cannon right um which was the time that we had our because we we were kind of like um we, we we were frenemies when we had our labels, um, I would say, you know, because we we needed to support each other because there were few people who had the vision and the the, the, the thinking that, that that we had. Um but also we were going after the, a lot of the same artists because we knew what talent was. So it was quite funny back then. We we as we were, you know, we were laughing about um last week when we were talking, we would have our own little bidding wars with each other. <laughs> and instead of it being a major label bidding oh. war, it'd be like, I'll raise you $10. You know? <laughs> I'll raise you $11. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Down my mouth, you know, like, so. The incredible artist, Jaleesa Anderson, yes. you know, um, was Amazing. someone I remember that we were both oh, we super were. passionate about. Oh, my God, yeah. And you won. I, I, you, you, you beat me to it. So you know, um, <laughs> fifteen dollars. Yes. Yeah. I know. I, I couldn't raise it above fourteen. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you left the music business, uh, and you decided to shift into film. Uh, right. It was. It was like you, you just had enough and um, went into film. Was that an easy? shift to make or was it something that you found as a very natural you know i think i got to a certain point and um you know in that environment it was challenging it was time to move on and and but and i kind of lost the joy of of being in music and i would i really reset my life on all levels uh i you know in in a movie theater in india taking like a you know off the grid sabbatical and I didn't know what they were talking about in the movie, but I knew what was happening. And I was like, that's where I want to go. I, cause I was yearning and seeking a bigger platform to communicate, to tell stories, to elevate different voices. Um, and that's when I set off on the path to, as a, as a filmmaker, going back to film school, um, interning, volunteering all over the place, working with student filmmakers and independents and film festivals and figuring out how I could transfer my skill sets as someone who could identify a voice, figure out how to get it done, um, and deliver it and so um it took time it didn't happen overnight of serious hustling uh and then one day i got a call and uh an old friend of mine i'm going to new orleans and um come join me on this adventure you can work with me i'm producing and you can work with the director and um that call was from Lee Daniels. That film was Monsters Ball. The director was right. Mark. And An amazing movie. Um, it just opened a whole nother um, path. 
Um, and I. So that was the first spent, major. That was the first major movie that you worked on, Monsters Ball. That was. Yeah, after working with a lot of really um, incredible folks like Seth Rosenfeld, who gave mm-hmm. me a lot of opportunities. So you know, on his projects and the Urban World Film Festival, that I worked there for a bit. Monsters Ball was the first big film. It was a film that was done with Lionsgate. And after that, the success of that film, when we saw that there was so much more for the company to do, that's when we really revved up Lee Daniels Entertainment as a production company. And our next film after that was uh, The Woodsman. Right, which is, that's a very dark film, but an amazing movie. Kevin Bacon, right? Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, most deaf, most deaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had worked with in on the music side, who was then in Monsters Ball, because I was like, mm-hmm. guys, you got to look at this guy, most deaf. He's amazing. He's, you know, he can do anything. Um, and um, so we did two films with him. Eve is in The Woodsman, also, uh, and. Um, David Allen Greer, Benjamin Bratt. Uh, and so that was when the production company came to, you know, it was like being back at Def Jam again. You know, like we raised the money, we sold the rights internationally, we told the story we wanted to and sold, sold it afterwards. Um, I just love that spirit and all of the film and, you know, the 10 years that, I was producing with Lee um, and that like I could transfer my skills uh, as a visionary, as a producer, music to film. And and you, you, you haven't mentioned one of the, the most amazing films that you did with Lee, which was precious years in the making. It was a, it, it was a film that, we fell in love with when it first came out in the nineties. Um, very brave, very brave after, film to make. It was a very brave film to make. But nitty gritty, raw and real. You know, I think there is a yes, very much so. need for content that is authentic and heartfelt. And uh, after Lee's directorial debut, Shadow Boxer, that I produced the author of Push, which is the book that Precious is based on, was like, you know what? I'm down. You know, I'm going to give you the rights. And uh, we set off and and we have found Gabourey Sidibe and her incredible talent and beautiful heart um, to really center and be the emotional spine, and of course, yeah. Can, I remember, you, you know, like, I remember you seeing, yeah, Monique was incredible in it too. Yeah, I remember seeing it at the New York Film Festival. I think it was the, um, I think it was the New York debut of the movie, uh, uh-huh. and the yep. after party after at the Plaza, uh, at the Plaza, which I remember seeing you at, and more to the after party, and you were sitting at a table with Robert De Niro, and you got up to say hello to me. And I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe that you, you you got up from sitting with Robert De Niro to say hello to me. That was so sweet. It was like a very nice moment for me. Um, so um, you, you set up Cortez films. 
Yeah, so after 10 years, once again, time to move on. I wanted to tell different stories. I wanted to think once again about where do we want to shine the light? Where do, what, where is my passion leading me? And, um, so that led me to start my own company and, um, you know, really diversify my portfolio at first as a producer. And, and now as a producer director to go to Curacao and, and make a film with the incredible Ernest Dickerson, um, you know, have, are, are all some of the, some of the, the early things that I did through the company. Um, and they, you know, that excite me. Yeah. And in, in the last few years, like last, I mean, the, 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 it's a longer tale when making a, uh, a film. I mean, it can take years, but as far as releases are concerned, you've been pretty pro- prolific over the last few years in some of the releases. And, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen a lot of them and really enjoyed them. I'd love to talk a little bit, a little bit about some of them because they are, you know, just very relevant and poignant. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is, um, uh, all in, uh, the fight for democracy. Uh, which, um, is, uh, you know, about Stacey Abrams and her, um, battle against voter suppression, suppression. Um, obviously that is a very timely topic, especially as what just happened in Atlanta last week. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, the, the making of that, the making of that film and what it meant to you. Um, and just your thoughts on sort of like somebody like Stacy and what, you know, what she did and, and is doing. Uh, so all in the fight for democracy available on Amazon prime it is a film on the, the history of voting rights and voter suppression and Stacey Abrams 2018 gubernatorial run. I uh, directed the film with the incredible Liz Garbus and we pr- produced it together with Stacey and Dan Kogan. Uh, the film was Stacey's idea. She, after the 2018 run, a lot of people came to her filmmakers and were like, we're going to tell you the story. And she's like, no, to tell my story, there's a bigger story. And she also felt that, you know, if people didn't like her tree in the forest, it might keep them away from understanding this history, but also understanding what progress could look like. Um, I could not turn down this, the invitation to join this dream team. Um, and, you know, I am so keenly aware of the shoulders that I stand on my parents, my grandparents, etc. They've been freedom fighters and warriors on both sides of my family time. And um, this was my attempt to continue uh, through my art um, and my activism um, and in a, in a really powerful intersection, not only with the film, but also with the impact campaign that we developed. And, you know, we've been able to reach like 80 million Americans with the film. Um, but also what the what in our communities, um, what we can do, you know, voting rights, voter suppression. It's, it's like a monster movie. You think you've cut the head off. 
of the monster. You think with the passage of, you know, the, the 15th Amendment granting the franchise to African-American men and Rikshin, that progress was being made. And then, of course, there's the pushback and the violent intimidation and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and you know, Michael keeps going on and on and on. You know, we had the tremendous uh, triumph on January 5th, you know, in Georgia. And then look what happened on January 6th the next, yeah, with the, next day. the Confederate yeah. flag in our capital. Yeah. Um, there's been over 243 laws that have been introduced thus far right now back on voting rights and access. And they are targeted on communities of brown, black folks. Yeah. It is it is not random. And so if we are not represented, we cannot be a part of the necessary change in yeah. our access for education, for health, for parity in, in our wages. Um, and, um, you know, so as you can tell, this, this film is very alive for me. It's not in the past tense. It is very no. much in conversation with this moment that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, especially what just happened in, in Georgia. I think it was last week or early this week. Where they're, they're literally, you know, the changing of the laws. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we don't have a lot of time. Um, and, and I, there's so much more I want to talk about as well. So I wanted to just talk to you a little bit, um, about two documentaries, uh, two other documentaries that you did recently, uh, the remix hip hop and fashion, uh, and then also the Apollo theater. So, um, uh, you know, the remix, uh, the hip hop fashion really was maybe going back to your roots when you were at Def Jam in many ways, because these, these were people who were working while you were working in many ways, you know. So talk a little bit about uh, that and the, 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 you know, the two people who were, you focused on in, in that, um, you know, Misa and April. Yeah, so the remix Hip Hop Times Fashion, which is on Netflix, uh, is about kind of the untold and the contributions of women in hip hop fashion that also influenced global fashion. Misa Hilton, April Walker. And it, it's part of, you know, I think you can see I get these obsessions up. So, you know, I started this obsession about, I wrote this article about women in hip hop, you know, and then it was way kind of back. Like, hmm, yeah. I, I want to make certain that, you know, our stories are always being shared and that, you know, the history is written to encompass. And, and that was the journey on that. And, and um, uh, you know, it's so interesting when you start to connect the dots of, you know, the innovation and the design and then how this design from April, from Misa gets co-opted. They're not given credit. And, but I think there's, you know, the full circle moment. I'm so happy for with what Misa's doing with IMG and, and what, um, April is doing with her line and, and just this new focus on what's happening, um, with their talent. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, the, you know, the Apollo is a doc directed by the incredible Roger Ross Williams. It's on HBO. 
looking at and I went to see it, I went to see it at the Apollo, which was Ooh. great actually seeing it at the Apollo when they showed it. Yeah, I was so happy you came and 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 it was really special. That was a screening we did for the community. Um and you know, with the Apollo, it's not only the story of this institution, but it's also about the intersection of our voice, about um how you know, our music, our art is connected to our struggle. Um, and we are resilient and we find ways to express our pain and joy in equal parts. Um, and we, for me, I can never separate the art um, because I think they, they both feed off of one another. Um, and I think, you know, when we look at the music, when we look, you know, champion, you know, jazz funk artists or reggae artists or, you know, things that are, might not be it mainstream, but ultimately become mainstream. Um, I've really honored to be able to have had the trust of so many artists in different genres and modalities of, of creating to, um, you know, rally and find platforms to tell their stories. Um, and to make certain that the history that's told is from a unique perspective, a perspective filled with lots of heart and love, but that is authentic to uh, the individual, to the culture. Yeah. And I remember watching the Apollo film. I learned so much about the Apollo because it's kind of you think you know about that institution because you, you look at the walls and you see all the pictures of the different artists and the mosaics and everything. But that, that documentary taught me like a lot. It, it was really it was fascinating. I loved it. Um, so, um, yeah, we only have a couple of minutes and I really want to. There's a film that you're making that I really want to get into with you. And that is the little Richard um uh documentary um because he is i mean we talk about iconic uh ahead of his time leader um and really who didn't get his uh just uh deserves i mean um talk talk to us about th that documentary and wh when's that coming out what what's what's the status of it uh little richard i am everything is um a great passion project uh, it is uh, part of the desire to reset history and, and provide a lot of information on how Richard is, you know, his important part of the structural integrity of rock and roll. You know, Absolutely. he is the mother, father, king, queen, as he said, I am everything. And really about giving him his flowers and having his voice guide us through his story from Macon, Georgia to Tutti Fruity to teaching the Beatles and the Rolling Stone. Um, and his, um, Jimi Hendrix and his great brother, yeah, yeah. Jimi Hendrix and his band, yeah. James Brown filling in from him when he was very young. Um, and then, so that is, um, you know, something that I'm, I'm starting a little bit. I'm, I'm working now on a documentary called The uh, Empire of Ebony on Johnson Publishing Company and their seminal um, uh, magazines, Ebony and Jet, the tremendous visual archive that mm -hmm. uh, they uh, created. 
and you know, once again, the what it is to be a black capitalist, a black entrepreneur, as Eunice and John Johnson were, and how they rewrote our history representation of the souls of black folks through their work. Yeah, and, and those magazines, iconic, iconic magazines, which, you know, again, were, you know, trailblazing. And yeah, the, I think I went to the Ebony offices in, um, in Chicago a few years ago when my friend Amy was there. And uh, just looking mm-hmm. at the walls and looking at the covers was just, it, it was mind blowing, you know, just to see how they, you know, that was, that was history, you know. Um, they had a building. Mr. Johnson bought the land. He built a building designed by a black architect. That's, you know, there's not many other people who've planted a flag like that. No, I mean, so when, when are these, when are you planning to release these? Uh, 2022. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Lisa, we have like, I think a minute left. Is there anything else you want to add that you didn't get a chance to say? Um, well, I want to thank you for your friendship and support through the years and um, for being in the struggle to um, broaden the voices and artists who have had a platform. Um, for anyone who's watching, I just stay well to uh, take a moment to breathe and reset and center. And um, I look forward to seeing you all on the dance floor really soon. Me too. Absolutely. Lisa, this has been amazing. You are an inspiration. And um, I can't wait to see, um, you know, the Little Richard and the Johnson documentary. And everybody go and see, um, you know, the, the remix in the uh, All in the Fight for Democracy, Stacey Abrams as well, and the Apollo documentary, because they're all awesome. Thank you for joining everyone. Lisa, thank you again. And we'll see everyone soon. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Giant Step Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow us on Instagram at Giant Step. Music is by Cinevo. Please also visit our website, giantstep.net, to learn more about our award-winning marketing agency.